and welcome to Drawing a Dialogue. My name is Kathy G. Johnson. And I'm E. Jackson. We are cartoonists, scholars, and educators. On Drawing a Dialogue, we put comics into historical and educational contexts. My segment explores the theoretical and historical analysis of our topic. And I talk about our topic through the lens of pedagogy and education with a focus on practical application. Um, so I'm Kathy. I work with K-12 students in schools in addition to alternative educational settings. My next graphic novel, The Breakaways, is coming out from 1st, 2nd in March. You can pre-order it at thebreakawayscomic.com. I have a master's degree in art education. And uh, I'm E. Hi. I'm a PhD student in the University of Florida's English program. Um, My research focuses on trans studies, comic studies, and museum studies. I also make largely self-published comics and... Since this one will be going up right before Kala, I will have a new comic printed by Diskette Press at uh, Comic Arts Los Angeles. Awesome. I'm also going to be at Comic Arts Los Angeles. We were there last year with a live show, but not this time. We're just there. Um, We're going to have new postcards, though. New Drawing a Dialogue postcards, which look very snazzy. And I still have buttons from last year, so you can... (laughs) Please say hi. So, welcome to episode 17 this episode, we are going to be talking about, I guess, transgender people. <laughs> so, so we've talked about, like, we often look at all of our topics through a trans lens, yes. but this one's like sort of, sort of a pullback. Yeah. So I am going to be talking about comics autobiography and transgender autobiography and the overlaps and nuances therein. Yeah. And then I am going to be talking about basically sort of the um, national climate for transgender students, and specifically K through 12 schools. Um, So we're dealing with minors and like sort of the policies and also the legalities of working with trans students inside of K through 12 schools. I mean, this is a really current topic in Mm -hmm. um, our national discourse, basically. So I just really wanted to do a lot of research and just talk about um, policies and the rights of trans students in schools. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So... This is an interesting topic for me. Uh, A lot of my research sort of uh, focuses on uh, issues around memoir uh, and trans embodiment and those things. But I'm going to start us off, I think, with a little bit of a discussion on what comics autobiography is, like what's been written about comics autobiography. Mm. Um, I've talked about comics autobiography before on this podcast in the um, episode three, uh, Memoir Comics and the Personal as Political. And in that episode, I was talking more about uh, performances of identity. Um, and relating it sort of to performance art. So this episode, I'm going to be talking a little bit more about the formal qualities. Mm. Um, I'm going to read a little bit from Elizabeth L. Raffae's autobiographical comics, which is from 2012, because she has a pretty good history, just like a brief history of what the actual genre of autobiography is. Mm. So autobiography was first recognized as a distinct literary genre in the late 18th century. Initially, scholarship focused on essentialist notions of a unique, autonomous, rational, purposeful and coherent self, something that was considered universal and also masculine. However, 
The profound social and cultural changes of the late 1960s and early 70s challenged comfortable assumptions not only about who could legitimately produce autobiography, but also what form autobiography can and should take. Autobiography thus gradually became an important tool by which marginalized individuals of all descriptions could make their voices heard and claim validity for their unique experiences in this world. Mm. So this idea is that, and it, it comes up a lot, but basically you see in the era of civil rights, sort of the 60s is sort of like second wave feminism, right? Mm -hmm. We see this sort of shift of like, who's allowed to write life narratives? What counts as an autobiography? Because it's not as if accounts of a person's individual life from their perspective don't exist for marginalized groups before those years, mm -hmm. um, but they aren't considered autobiographies, right? Like no one really talks about like um, slave narratives, autobiographic accounts, but they are, right? Mm, okay. Yeah. So it, it's sort of like this idea of like what actually counts as an autobiography gets like fuzzier and fuzzier as we move sort of into um, what's sort of considered post-structuralist, post-modern thought. That actually overlaps with what I'm going to be talking about too. Cool. The 60s feminism, how that sort of opened up different rights mm -hmm. yeah the the like uh the 60s are sort of a break in culture you'll see mm -hmm. a lot yeah. of genres like that so a, a, a scholar that gets cited a lot in talking about autobiography is uh philip lejeune Okay. So LRFA writes, uh, some scholars dealing with autobiographical texts have rediscovered Philip Lejeune's 1989 concept of the, quote, autobiographical pact, a sort of tacit understanding between the author and reader by which the former commits him or herself not to some unattainable historical exactitude, but to the sincere effort to be as truthful as possible. Mm. Um, so this idea that, like, because one of the um, formal concerns with autobiography is about truth and authenticity. Um, and I come back to this a lot when I'm thinking about trans embodiment of like, what does authenticity mean? And so Lejeune's theory was that in autobiography, it's not so much that you're proving historical truth, but that you're being honest mm -hmm. as a narrator. And so you're entering a pact, the reader enters a pact to believe you. So it's more of a way of reading than a mode of writing. And this is something that sort of Beatty is also drawing on. He wrote, uh, this is a, just a, a chapter. This was in a comic studies reader, and it's Bart Beatty's chapter, Autobiography is Authenticity. He writes, Central to the study of autobiography has been the project of defining it as a genre distinct from biography and fiction. Philip Lejeune's often cited definition of the genre is widely regarded as normative, and he quotes that. Uh, retrospective prose narrative written by a real person concerning his own existence, where the focus is his individual life, in particular the story of his personality. Uh, indeed, it is fair to say that the study of autobiography is dominated by inquiries into the particular traits of autobiography and comparisons between autobiography and other literary forms. So this is sort of the broad scope of what discussion about autobiography looks like. Mm -hmm. It's questions about what autobiography is, what gets to count as autobiography, um, the role of truth in autobiography, and so forth. So this, um, so this is sort of a complicated idea, right? Uh, this uh -huh. idea of authenticity, especially if we're talking about comics. And we're also talking about um, transness, right? And sort right. of like what discourses of authenticity are around those two things. Mm -hmm. So comics, according to El Rafay, 
offers a potential new way of conceptualizing the self because it's not just drawing on a literary background. It's also drawing on art and photography and the like very, very long history of self portraiture. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. Actually (laughs) that self portraiture has a direct tie to autobiography comics. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting. And it is something like, What's interesting to me, just as a scholar, is like this idea of um, what is the difference between just writing prose about yourself and drawing yourself, mm. right? Mm-hmm. Like there's a different generative potential mm-hmm. in there. Um, and uh, this is what Elra Fay kind of talks about. She says, like, the autobiographical comic genre offers artists the opportunity to represent their physical identities in ways that reflect their own innermost sense of self, often by using a range of symbolic elements and rhetorical tropes to add further layers of meaning to their self-portraits, which she calls pictorial embodiment. Mm. And I think there's something about realizing the body in this, uh, because Raffae talks about the body as this object of experience that sort of like eludes being visually experienced or like cognitively experienced, um, that the absence or the disappearance of the body is a logical consequence of the way our conscious attitude is always directed primarily towards the world. The organs used to perceive the world inevitably recede from the perceptual field it discloses in the sense that we do not see our eyes, smell our nasal tissues, or hear our ears. Hmm. But here's where I want to complicate this, right? Um, because when that when we're talking about being trans, there's a certain awareness of the self that is required in order to navigate a cis gaze of society. Okay. Ricky Ann Wilchins talks about this in um, her essay, What Does It Cost to Tell the Truth? Uh, hmm. Which was published in her book, Read My Lips, which came out in 1997. And if you know me, I talk about this essay all the time. Um, (laughs) But she writes, uh, Foucault asked about the necessity of making oneself an object of possible knowledge to be learned and memorized. For genderqueers, that necessity is survival. The purpose of a gender regime is to regulate these meanings and to punish those who transgress them. In order to survive, to avoid the bashings, the job discrimination, and the street corner humiliations, my friend will be forced to place herself as the site of truth to be mastered that knowledge will come from others she must know how others see her so that she can know how to see herself otherwise she enters society at her peril yeah yeah right so that's like that complicates el rafay's point that um sort of like pictorial embodiment is this opportunity to like understand what you look like because for trans people we already have to understand what we look like yeah (laughs) in order to be legible there's actually in my section i'm going to talk a lot about Glisten. So Glisten is the Gay and Lesbian Straight Education Network, and they sort of create a lot of uh, resources um, for supporting LGBTQIA students for schools mm-hmm. and educations. And they have like this definition, and it's always been sort of frustrating to me a lot of the ways that they have the definition of transgender and like mm-hmm. the quote unquote biological sex and all that stuff, which yeah. starts to get really messy, but you're trying to teach, you know, potential allies. Mm-hmm. It's schools anyway they had they had like a gender terminology image that i actually was like oh this is great so they have like sex assigned at birth so what the medical community labels you right gender expression how you want to display your gender right gender identity how you identify and then gender attribution which is how your gender is perceived by others yes 
Yeah, which I really like having sort of a difference between gender attribution and gender expression and gender identity. Like, it's all... Yeah, it's, you know, different things and um, they don't intersect neatly. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Like, the way you are being perceived is not necessarily the way that you are displaying. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, just like E was saying, that is something that um, transgender people are aware of, right? <laughs> right. And it, um, so Wilchin goes on to write, uh, we like to think in Judith Butler's memorable phrase that physical features exist somewhere out there on the far side of language. But if even a feature as fundamental and measurable as my tallness can be derived through your reviewing a population of bodies, perceiving some normative measure, and then carrying out, albeit unconsciously, an operation of comparison, then that tallness looks suspiciously to me like something you read on me instead of some innate feature in me. Mm. Mm-hmm. So yeah, th- I think there's sort of this like tension there. Um, and I'm going to use this to sort of switch us into transgender autobiography as its own genre. Because there is, first of all, there's a lot of transgender autobiography, just like yes. prose, and there's a lot written about it. So Suzanne Stryker in her book, Queer Pulp, uh, which talks about uh, gay, lesbian, bi, and transgender pulp novels, basically, the history of them, mm-hmm. sort of identifies the 50s as the period when transgender autobiography began to emerge as a genre. So she writes, compared to gay, lesbian, and bisexual paperbacks, a disproportionate amount of transgender titles told or at least approximated the story of actual lives. Um, many work uh, compilations of various, quote, case studies, so like fake sociology and sexology. Mm-hmm. But uh, she writes, since Christine Jorgensen's advent into popular consciousness in 1952, more than 50 uh, transsexual autobiographies have been published in book form, approximately one every year. And one of the first to be issued was Roberta Cowell's story in 1955. Jorgensen's own autobiography wouldn't get published until the mid-60s because she was so busy doing the press tour. (laughs) Which I love that she was, like, just so busy being, like, a a minor celebrity that she didn't have time to write her own Mm. autobiography until 10 years later. Um, But, yeah, it was this idea that, like... um, I mean, Stryker kind of uh, notes that it seems that for the public eye that, like actual trans lives were stranger than fiction and that's sort of why there was such like a public hunger for trans uh autobiography as opposed to like sensationalist romance stories or whatever Mm. Mm -hmm. but i think a part of it is also uh a lot of writing about autobiography is about self-articulation and this is sort of especially true when people write about transgender autobiography. Um, I, I will say that, like, a lot of writing about trans autobiography focuses specifically on uh, transsexual autobiography. So autobiography from people who identify as transsexual who uh, medically transition. Mm. There are, I, like, Stryker notes that, like, even in the 60s, uh, transsexuals were not the only people to write memoirs revealing the complexity of gender practices in mid-20th century America. And she cites a memoir by a drag queen, a memoir by a a person who identified as a heterosexual crossdresser. So there are always, I think, genderqueer and like broad gendered queer experiences being written about. Mm. Um, But academic focus tends to be on like the medical transition. And I think also public focus, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> like if we just think about like what's popular to talk about. Um, I, I do want to note that like all of this is made complicated by language. 
so Stryker uh, identifies like the 60s, the 50s as sort of this emergent point. But in um, in uh, Second Skins, Jay Prosser actually originates trans narrative in The Well of Loneliness yeah. by Radcliffe Hall, uh, which was published in 1928 and is commonly considered a lesbian novel, like sort of the origination of like lesbian stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and I should note that The Well of Loneliness isn't autobiographic. It's fiction, <laughs> but like Prosser talks about it as an origination of like trans narrative Rather than a, a memoir. Yeah, yeah. And it's because um, The Well of Loneliness and uh, sort of in like this early part of the 20th century, um, things get categorized as inversion. Yes. And inversion was sort of this broad diagnostic category that uh, was where same-sex desire was located in it, but same-sex desire wasn't the only thing in inversion. <laughs> it, it was about gender deviance. So people that were gender, uh, like gendered as male presenting as female or people to a lesser degree, people who are gendered as female presenting as male. And that was sort of conflated with sexual desire and like used as a diagnostic tool to find people who they thought were same sex attracted to other people. And it really wasn't until <laughs> the the 50s. That are like until like Jorgensen and like the way that like the public conversation around what uh, trans meant, where we started to see more like a split between uh, like homosexual and transsexual. Mm-hmm. So Prosser's point is that like because the well loneliness involves a character who is sort of classically like a male presenting, male identified, uh, gets reclaimed as a masculine lesbian, but like under this like sort of wobbly category of inversion could also be a transgender character uh, mm. in the contemporary sense. And this is like what what I mean by like a lot of this history is tricky to talk about because um, one, a lot of it's been not re- recorded <laughs> or archived, mm-hmm. um, but also the language that we use now is not even the language that we were using 20 years ago, let alone 60 or 80 or 100. So, yeah, that's that's actually a lot of the confusion that a lot of my section, like what schools and school policies, uh, it, there's a lot of confusion in like gay and lesbian student rights sort of mm-hmm. con- getting conflated with transgender student rights and like the ways in which sexuality and gender um i mean they're very intersectional but also mm-hmm. like the history of the medical community really conflating those things and like yeah. sort of perpetuating the wrong information and then because of perpetuating this wrong information then like alienating transgender people from their own experiences and yeah. their own histories uh we've talked about this before in the jeffrey Catherine jones episode yeah with the queer underground and so like the way that terminology is alienating to people yeah so i think i think i like that we just have to be open to using what terminology that's like considered wrong now but like not yeah. being like not taking it to the extreme and erasing our history yeah yeah there's a real danger in trying to like quote update uh-huh. language to be what we use now because i mean one we don't know how they would have identified mm-hmm. if they had the full 
breadth of terminology we have nowadays. And also, just because we don't use those terms now don't mean that they aren't valuable in a historical context Yeah, to understanding the culture and how the culture formed. Yeah. I mean, I do want uh, to make a difference between like the violence that the metal community has mm -hmm. inflicted on LGBTQIA people, mm -hmm. but you don't want to erase history because that is dangerous. Yeah. Um. So Prosser, so he's writing again specifically about transsexual autobiography that's the term he uses but he has this sort of interesting analysis he's working he works with about 50 transsexual autobiographies wow <laughs> <laughs> i know you know full breath um he writes autobiography is ostensibly anyway the literary act of self-reflection the textual product of the eye reflecting on itself which i talked about when i was talking about the comics right but he argues that autobiography for the transsexual begins even before the published autobiography, namely in the clinician's office where, in order to be diagnosed as transsexual, she or he must recount a transsexual autobiography. So uh. there's a little bit – there's differences now in the contemporary. This book is um, a little bit dated uh, because now with like uh, certain locations having informed consent clinics and things like that, it's a little bit like less of a – the narrative isn't as stable as it used to be. But if you read – like if you go back and you look at these sort of historical trans autobiographies, like they're very formulaic. Like there's like mm. a, a, a – there's like a trope to them. There's like a specific narrative path they follow. And Prosser's argument is that part of the reason that comes and the reason that's effective and uh, trans authors keep engaging with it is because before they get to the point where they write an autobiography to be published, that's the story they have to sell the doctor – to get approved for treatment mm -hmm. because transitioning, you know, for people who maybe aren't aware, um, if, if you don't have the option of an informed consent clinic where you just go in and sign some paperwork basically, and you're usually pretty good to go. Mm -hmm. And those don't, those don't exist everywhere. They're in like certain areas. You have to first go to a psychiatrist and get approved before you're sent to a gender specialist doctor right. and this, if you so you have to sort of like convince it's very terrible you have to sort of convince a psychiatrist that you're genuine and i mean you have to sort of hope that you get a psychiatrist who will believe you and won't expect a certain uh performance of transsexuality to approve you know right. yeah so like uh, Jay Prosser sort of calls this body narrative how uh, the body itself and narrative work together to produce what he calls transsexual subjectivity. So like, quote, in effect, to be transsexual, the subject must be a skilled narrator of his or her life. Tell the story persuasively and you're likely to get your hormones and surgery. Falter, repeat, disorder, omit, digress, and you've pretty much had it. However, quote, authentic a transsexual you are. Mm. This Again, we're circling back to this idea of like what's authenticity and autobiography and how in the case of people who have to go through these repressive medical establishments, there is a certain degree of like you have to construct your identity in a certain way, yeah. right? So it sort of produces the act of autobiography through just telling your story to people in order to gain gender-affirming care is a sort of draft mm -hmm. 
for what the transsexual autobiography would actually become. And the that's actually, so a lot of the trans student policies I'm going to talk about sort of explicitly reference that schools should not have to require any sort of medical, mm-hmm. like a student shouldn't have to prove their trans status to the school officials in order to have their trans, trans status uh, respected and recognized in school. Mm-hmm. And and so part of me feels like if that is explicitly being stated in all these policy recommendations, then that means that uh, there's a history of schools requiring that. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's the sort of thing, again, if you are a trans person, you sort of are either uh, understand it, like you just are, you have to understand it. Like you have to know what this narrative is in order to like kill tow to it. I'm trying to think of, like, when I became aware. I'm trying to think of, like, when I learned about it. And I honestly don't remember. I just kind of, like, I just sort of was, like, always a thing that I just, I guess, once I started, like, understanding my own gender identity that I was, like, aware of, that there was, like, a certain, like, I think it's reflected also in, like, popular narratives written by cis people. Yeah, and that actually comes up a lot is that that it's a it was a psychological diagnosis and so mm-hmm. in order to get I mean actually like in it was like a disability right, right? So like yes. but yeah. then you needed to have the diagnosis in order to get your rights yes. for your disability. And now it's significantly much more recognized that it's not a disability. <laughs> yes. Um <laughs> and I, actually there's some laws that are like sort of tied to and actually we mentioned this for the school to prison pipeline right that like how yes. the americans with disabilities act actually helps with a lot of intersectionality for other types of um different types of oppressed identities yeah 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 so uh, like the history of requiring this kind of thing is, is uh, at least yeah. from my current understanding is is somewhat tied to like disability rights yeah and i do want to note that all of this um like this sort of talk about like medical transition and like the sort of song and dance like it is d- disrupted in the contemporary um both because again i think there's like a wider range of quote acceptable life narratives for trans people I mean, again, it it is very bound up in where you live and sort of your luck in accesses. But also because sort of a bigger issue at this point is uh, just legitimate access to being able to get medical care in the first place, Um, which is a dimension that's not necessarily talked about in this context i mean i just really cursory in my research i just sort of it medical transition isn't like a huge part of my section so i Mm -hmm. sort of ignored it but i found one that was like a study on like urologists and like medical professionals Mm -hmm. who have been like taught anything about transgender people and it was something like 40 to 50 percent like even had any sort of mention of it while they were in school so, yeah. Yeah. And it's also disrupted because, again, like, the transsexual autobiography is one subjectivity out of, like, the broad range of what transgender and, like, genderqueer experience is. But, and here's where it gets tricky, right, is that there's a little bit of writing about, like, I have a book, I'm not going to read from it, but I do have a book, uh, Entering Transmasculinity by Matthew Hines, that sort of talks is about transmasculine contemporary discourses, and he works a lot with, like, YouTubers um, and bloggers. Okay. And again, this sort of comes back to this idea of like, what's autobiography? Is uh, a transition narrative on YouTube an autobiography? It could be. There's an argument for it, but you know, it, it, it's just like a limited area. But okay. But this is so 
and this is me, this is, this is me eat. Cause this is again, a topic that I'm very interested in. I work with a lot is I sort of see when you look at autobiography, life writing, whatever you want to call it by cartoonists and specifically trans cartoonists. And I would say really with the exception of trans poses by Dylan Edward, um, uh, trans autobio is largely self-published in comics or micro pub. Yeah, yeah. In comics. I'm talking. Yeah. So one, self-published comics sort of elude uh, wider recognition in the first place. But I think there's, if you look at those sort of comic zines, right, or like small self-published comics or things like that, uh, there's a lot of trans autobio, trans life writing, and trans narratives that sort of like disrupt or directly challenge these ideas around uh, like body subjectivity, body narrative that Proster was talking about and like pictorial embodiment, like all these different things we've been talking about um, mm. sort of get reflected in really interesting ways. I do have this manga that was put out this year by Seven Seas Entertainment, mm-hmm. distributed by Macmillan, and it's titled The Bride Was a Boy. Yes. And it's by an artist named Chi, C-H-I-I. And that is a trans memoir that's going to have major distribution. I mean, I just bought this from Barnes & Noble. Yeah. But it's really, like, she's talking about her personal experience, but it's still very trying to be educational. I mean, it's... it's mm-hmm. I wouldn't say it's the deepest... <laughs> Yeah. Um I, I yeah. think what I'm trying to say is that uh trans narrative is still a force to be pretty surface level educational mm-hmm. for its readers rather than like um really individual. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And I think that's again why I sort of look at self published types. Like think about Absolutely, um, yeah. You don't have to be afraid of me by Victor Martins that just came out this year. And like Higu Rose's work or mm-hmm. like Carta Monir, um any mock there's like all these artists that are doing sort of on like the periphery of the comics industry and also really the periphery of trans writing in general. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um really interesting individual non-didactic somewhat radical work that really challenges these ideas around like what authentic transgender embodiment is what authentic like what autobiography means Mm -hmm. um in the first place and it's sort of that is sort of where I wanted to sort of bring this because I didn't want this to be like a very like a lot of this is kind of rough. <laughs> like if we're talking about like how gender regimes force trans people to be like aware of themselves in a way that cis people usually don't have to be or white cis people specifically usually don't have to be. But I, I just I think if you look at like comics and the work that's being done by trans people in comics, there's a little bit of that like utopian promise of queer futurity <laughs> that... Um, that uh, Jose Esteban Munoz talks about in Cruising Utopia. You know, that's all I got, really. Oh, okay. I just, <laughs> yeah, and I, and I mean, I always I say this every episode. That's what we're doing in trying a dialogue is trying to bring awareness to these things, like making connections between these things that aren't often talked about, and like trying to encourage more dialogue about it. Thank you so much, E. So now it's time for my segment where I talk about our topic in educational settings. Yes. So I really did bring this topic to E specifically because I wanted to be able to do a lot of research on like trans students and the national climate and like policies and legalities because it is really a current topic 
Um, I mean, obviously, trans rights has been a consistent issue. Mm -hmm. But the more it is talked about in sort of the wider culture, the more um, trans children are being able to feel like they are able to come out younger, Mm. which is a positive thing, right? But it's true that trans people are coming out younger and younger rather than um, waiting until adulthood. Yeah, yeah. Uh, actually, I was, it's interesting because that was a thing that uh, Prosser and a couple other people I read noted is that a lot of the autobiographies take place after a person is sort of, um, quote unquote, completed their transition, whatever that means, <laughs> and, um, are like sort of reflecting back on their life in a certain way. Um, but I think a lot of contemporary trans narratives uh, by trans people come from younger people and are a little bit less defined. Yeah. So I'm going to start out talking about the national climate and then I'm going to talk about like policies and legalities. And then I'm going to talk about like inside of schools. So just sort of the basic intro. Um, this is from Supporting Transgender and Gender Expansive Children in School mm-hmm. by Melinda Mangan um, from 2018. So it's a recent article. Melinda just sort of points out that while there is no conclusive data for children under the age of 13, Mm -hmm. 0.7% of teenagers, so like 13 to 17, or approximately 150,000 youth identify as transgender. Mm -hmm. Therefore, schools with more than 143 children are almost certain to have at least one transgender child. Mm -hmm. And if you think about 143 children is usually, most schools are bigger than that, right? Right. So it's just helpful to begin to think about, like, there is going to be a transgender child in a school, more likely than not, right? Yeah. The idea that children can be transgender often surprises cisgender adults who wonder how children can know their gender. However, developmental psychologists agree that children's core gender identity develops by the age of three and continues to develop through young adulthood, a fact that Mm. is seldom questioned in non-transgender children, right? So this is sort of just talking about cisgender privilege, is that the development of gender identity is like privileged in the sense that it's supported in a heteronormative space, right? Yeah. And cisnormative space. And so it's just, um, it can come off as very surprising to someone without that experience that a child can know that they're transgender when they're young. So now I'm going to go move on to the GLSEN survey. So that's the Gay and Lesbian Straight Education Network. Mm -hmm. So they have been conducting the National School Climate Survey that documents the experiences of lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer youth in our nation's schools. Mm. By the way, in this section, I'm going to be specifically talking about transgender and like LGBT, um, but like the QIA the intersex, the asexual is also important. It's just being able to talk about intersectionality in the same breath as trying to simplify it for an educator who, like, imagine your cisgender straight educator who, like, knows nothing, right? And so a lot of the stuff tries to be simplifying. A lot of the educational sources tries to be simplifying in a way that I actually strongly disagree with in many ways. Yes, But it's also just like that slow informational, like it's like just scaffolding learning, basically. But this is scaffolding learning for adults. Yes. 
So I just wanted to clarify acronyms and sort of like the topic at hand. But this GLSEN survey specifically for LGBT and queer youth, right? So they aren't talking about intersex or asexual youth. They started doing this national survey in 1999. GLSEN identified that little was known about the school experiences of, of LGBT and Q youth, mm-hmm. and that youth are nearly absent from national surveys of ad- adolescents. So they've really only been doing this since 1999, um, which is disappointing, but the survey is conducted every two years. I just have a few statistics that I pulled specifically about transgender and gender non-conforming students. Okay. Uh, so... I love a statistic, right? Yes. <laughs> um, so, um, discriminatory school policies and practices. This is the section. Uh-huh. Some policies particularly targeted to transgender and gender nonconforming students. So 42.1% of transgender and gender nonconforming students have been prevented from using the preferred name or pronoun. Mm. Okay, so a little less than half of students have been prevented from using preferred name and pronoun. And then again, a little less than half of students, 46.5% of transgender students have been required to use the bathroom of their quote unquote legal sex. Mm -hmm. And then a 43.6% of these students have been required to use the locker room of their legal sex. So less than half of students are being prevented from being able to express their gender identity as they want to, right? Right. So this is, I believe this is specifically the United States. I'm just going to roll with that. I'm, I'm sure this okay. is probably just specifically the United States. So inclusive curricular resources availability, only 19.8%, so about 20%, of LGBTQ students were taught positive representations about LGBTQ people. 18.4% had been taught negative content, right? So 20, about 20% oh. are taught positive things, about 20% right. are taught negative things, and then only 6.7% of students reported receiving LGBTQ inclusive sex education. Mm. Um, so only less than 7% of students are, are receiving um, sex education that is inclusive of mm-hmm. anything that is non-heterosexual or yeah. cisgender, which is um, important to safety, right? <laughs> yes. Um, and then, and ignorance, right? And then, so why is diversity important in schools. Uh, diversity education is important in schools so everyone um, is able to learn about everyone that they're going to see in the world, right? So this is like the students who are reporting are identify as queer, mm. but even, I mean, just because they aren't learning the sex education that include that will include their experiences is also really important to think about the majority who is also going to be remaining ignorant, right? Yeah. Less than half, so 41% of students reported they could find information about LGBTQ related issues in their school library. And then also about half of students with internet access at schools reported being able to access queer related information online via school computers. So that's meaning that about 50% of schools are blocking lesbian and gay and transgender websites. Right. Which is specific, like, so like, basically, it's the sexualizing of sexual orientation and like that being considered in appropriate for school is also like a really important thing to recognize. Yeah. Is like the way that people of different identities are being considered inappropriate. 
Right. Yeah. Um, so I'm still reading from the Glisten survey, inclusive and supportive school policies availability. So uh, although the majority, so 79.3% of students had an anti-bullying policy at their school, only 12.6% of students reported that their school had a comprehensive policy. So basically one that specifically enumerates both sexual and gender identity, right? So it's just saying right. you can't bully. So schools have these policies that say you can't bully, but 80% of schools have this. But so like only 12.6 of those actual policies specifically say you can't bully because of sexual orientation or gender expression. Yes. Only 10.6% of LGBTQ students reported that their school or district had official policies that support transgender and gender non-conforming students. Mm -hmm. So just like um, being able to actually have statistics, right? It's really important. I mean, maybe this is a little tedious to be listening to, mm -hmm. um, but it is really important. Like E was saying, is like it gets to be so subjective, right? Mostly because it's like people are aren't doing this research, people aren't doing this stuff. And so people just talk about the way they feel, which yeah. becomes really difficult when you're trying to make a legal case, all that stuff. Yeah. And like trying to understand what is happening in school. So the fact that this survey has been happening for the past 20 years is really important. It's one of the few that is available. So here's the utility. So they talk about the policies that are currently available, and then the actual utility of those policies in schools. For transgender and gender non-conforming students and students those schools that have policy guidelines, we're less likely to experience discrimination. Mm. Uh, we're less likely to be prevented from using their name or pronoun choice, less likely to be required to use bathrooms of their legal sex, less mm. likely to be required to use locker rooms of their legal sex, less likely to be prevented from wearing clothes thought to be quote-unquote inappropriate for their gender, we're less okay. likely to miss school because they felt unsafe and felt greater belonging to their school community. So the utility of actually having school policies is extremely important, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm going to keep talking about policies in a little in just a second, but I think something that's actually really important to sort of address is that discrimination, so discrimination from negative remarks from students, but also from school staff, um, yes. so homophobic and transphobic remarks, has actually been going up since 2013. So anti-LGBTQ discrimination in schools has been going up since 2013. So there was a survey in 2015 and 2017. Okay. And part of me feels like, I mean, this isn't the survey, but part of it could be students are feeling more comfortable about coming forward and reporting discrimination, mm. or it's part of the national conversation more. So people are making more remarks because they're hearing about it more in the news. And also, it, I'm just... Not even going out on a limb here to say discriminatory, especially racist discrimination and hate crimes has been going up in the United States since Trump has become part yes. of the political conversation because people yeah. who are doing these hate-fueled violences are starting to feel more comfortable. Yeah, yeah. So it could be a connection between visibility, um, political climate as supporting hate, but also that students are starting to feel more comfortable in their schools. LGBTQ students are feeling more comfortable in schools, so feeling more comfortable about coming forward with discrimination. So it could be seen as a positive or a negative that these changes are occurring, right? That the discrimination is going up since 2013. Anyway, so I just wanted to, it's important to talk about the climate, right? And to the current schools and um, what's happening in them. Yes. So there has been improvement for sexual orientation or anti-LGBTQ discrimination, but that same 
same improvement has not been extended to transgender and gender nonconforming students. Mm. Um, this one's pretty basic, but I think it's important to talk about. So transgender students reported more hostile school experiences than LGBTQ cisgender students, genderqueer mm. students, and students with other non-binary identities. So non-binary students don't experience the same amount of discrimination that students who identify as transgender experience. There's a lot of sort of disconnect between gender non-conforming and transgender. I personally sort of consider transgender anyone who is not cisgender. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but there's a little bit of a distinction in these conversations because I think these educators are trying to sort of figure out their own environments, right? So yeah. So like they, them pronouns and stuff like that is another thing that people are learning right now. So genderqueer students and students with other non-binary identities reported more hostile school experiences than LGBTQ cisgender students. So basically, transgender students are experiencing more hostile environments in school than people of different um, sexual orientations who are identified right. as cisgender. Do any of these surveys break down by race at all? Yeah, that's actually a specific intersectionality in this stuff. I specifically, because I was specifically trying to pull for transgender students, I didn't pull any of that. Okay. But they do talk about inclusivity and safe spaces for students of color okay. uh, who identify as queer. Okay. Just like you were talking about earlier, it has a lot to do with where you live. Yes. Rural areas, um, students experience more discrimination than in city and urban areas. Students in the South experience more discrimination um, than students in other areas of the United States. Mm -hmm. um, Native American and American Indian Alaska Native students were generally more likely than any other racial slash ethnic groups to experience anti-LGBTQ victimization and discrimination. And part of me thinks that that might be the rural setting of um, schools in reservations. Mm -hmm. So that, that's actually important to talk about is like the way that na that Native American students are experiencing the most LGBTQ victimization and discrimination in schools than any other racial group. Yeah. Part of me attributes that to geography, but uh, all, obviously that also has to do with um, United States history and environments and school environments. Uh, white students were less likely than all other racial slash ethnic groups to feel unsafe and experience victimization because of their racial slash ethnic identity. Mm -hmm. Black slash African American students were more likely than um, Latinx, white, and South Asian slash Pacific Islander students to experience out of school suspension or expulsion. And that's something we talked about last episode in the school to prison pipeline and sort of the criminalization of LGBTQ students. So uh, yeah. black students who identify as LGBTQ are experiencing more expulsion and suspension from school, which is part of that school to prison pipeline. Um, we talked about that last episode, episode 16. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so the luckily a lot of the, at least glisten, but a lot of the sources I found actually talk about safe spaces in the sense of any sort of minority um, and yeah. the importance of recognizing intersectionality is luckily it's not being ignored. Um, we're moving on to sort of the NEA transgender guide. So that's going to be the National Education Association. So that's going to be mm -hmm. public schools, right? Yeah. So they issued a legal guidance on transgender students' rights in June 2016. So this is actually what's very interesting to me. So like students in K through 12 schools are majority going to be minors, right? So yes. 
their rights have a lot to do with the parents, right? And schools. Um, so like, usually if a student is in their schools, the school then becomes that legal guardian of that mm. student while they're in the school. Things like that. Yeah, yeah. So the actual legal conversation is like sort of really important. So this sort of talks about where transgender students get their rights. And specifically, the number one law that is cited that protects transgender students is going to be the Title IX of the Education Amendments of 1972. Yes. You might be really familiar with Title IX offices. That's like something that comes up a lot in conversations, um, especially in the past decade or so when you're talking about college rapes and like college sexual assaults. It's the Title IX offices that deals with that. And that Title IX office is specifically, let me just read Title IX. I'm just going to read it for you. Title IX of the Education Amendments of 1972 provides that no person shall be excluded from participation in, be denied benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under any educational program or activity or receiving financial federal assistance on the basis of sex. So it's literally just on the basis of sex, right? So it was specifically sort of used for the rights of women and girls to attend school in an equal way to men and boys. Yes. And so that's why Title IX is sort of invoked for sexual assault accusations in college campuses is because if sexual assault is taking place on the campus, then that is not going to be an equal or safe environment for women and girls Mm. attending classes, right? But it's also the law that is cited for transgender students' rights. Some other laws that protect transgender students, in addition to Title IX, is going to be the Equal Protection Clause of the United States Constitution, the First Amendment of the Constitution, (laughs) due process of the Constitution, and then some state and local laws. But it is... The difficult thing is, it's literally just Title IX that says you can't discriminate based on sex, right? Yeah. And so it's like really unspecific. So NEA has their transgender guide. I'm going to talk about some other specifics on how these rights have been like created, right? And so like usually rights, like a student's right is going to be tied to a court case. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Because the only thing they're going off of is this Title IX. So this is the list of student rights, but the only thing that's giving the students these rights is Title IX and the Constitution of the United States of America. (laughs) So students have the right to not be disabled disciplined or treated differently because of if they are transgender. Students have the right to be treated with respect and not harassed or bullied because of their transgender. Mm-hmm. Students have the right to equal education opportunities, including the right to use locker rooms and restrooms that are consistent with the student's gender identity and participate equally in athletic or extracurricular activities and other school events. This is sort of the key one that comes up is locker rooms, bathrooms, and athletics, right? Yes. Like what's sport teams. So this is key because a lot of sports in schools are gendered, right? They're either the male team or the female team, which can leave a lot of people out. And it's also sort of regressive, right? Not all schools, like usually you need to be big enough, like sometimes like hockey teams and volleyball teams can be co-ed because there aren't enough students interested in it. Oh, yeah. A a lot of, basically... A lot of transgender rights is tied to um, women's rights. So students have the right to equal education. Uh, Students have the right to transition at school. 
so express their transgender their transition gender and all that stuff and also the right to be called by the preferred names and pronouns um students have the right to dress accordingly to their gender identity so long as they follow appropriate dress rules that apply to stu- all students mm. so you know things like spaghetti straps and like short sh- skirts and like all that stuff which is also again super tied to women's rights and girl the rights mm-hmm. of girls and then uh, students have the right not to be compelled to provide personal or medical information to school officials key actions that schools and school districts can take to respect transgender students which is adopt policies listen to students and accept their assertion of their identity mm-hmm. use their preferred names and pronouns mm-hmm. um, change school records if the students and their families requested so change their uh, name on things like transcripts stuff like that okay again that is not a legal document right that's just like an internal like (laughs) Mm. (laughs) that's actually such a funny thing to say but maybe that's an idea no one has actually talked about your grades aren't a legal document (laughs) no but that is because a lot of um i mean i didn't come out till i was in college so this is all my college experience but like a lot of like my diploma was very nearly in the wrong name because uh before the registrar quit was replaced by someone else they were just like no it has to be your legal name right yeah it's which isn't true because it really it really comes down yeah it really comes down (laughs) to um a person in an office and their own biases which is unfortunate right so that's actually why policies are important right yeah so so everyone within that school is required by like the policy handbook to follow these certain things because otherwise people are just sort of flying by the seat of their pants sometimes right yes access to sex segregated facilities again that's going to be restrooms and locker rooms athletic programs so when institutions provide sex segregated physical education or athletic programs students must be allowed to participate in a manner consistent with their gender identity Mm. again that also that begins to get messy when you're talking about non-binary identities right yes dress students should have the right to dress in accordance with their gender identity and also privacy for transgender students Students must be able to decide when, with whom, and how much highly personal information is shared with others, right? You can't out someone without someone's consent. And this Mm -hmm. is actually important because we're talking about minors again, right? Yeah. But if you think about it, you would respect if a student came out as gay to you. You would not out them to anyone else, right? Yeah. That's considered... A private information um and that should be the student's decision and that sh- the truth should also be for transgender students right and so i just wanted to backtrack a little bit and talk about sex segregated bathrooms as something that comes up a lot in discourse and especially national discourse there's something called bathroom bills that comes up a lot they've been voted on consistently so i sort of wanted to talk about um public restrooms basically like how we yeah. got to this point where yeah with- yeah Um, transgender people and their access to bathrooms. So this is from Toilets, Public Restrooms and the Politics of Sharing, which is a collection of essays published in 2010. So from chapter 9, this is written by Olga Gershenson. The history of the modern restroom has been a history of successive social groups proposing a right to access and a mode of toilet configuration fitting to their needs and desires, right? So that's Mm -hmm. actually, the history of modern restrooms is a history of different social groups and their right to access. Okay. So this is from Chapter 7 by Terry S. Kogan. 1887 is the first law mandating sex-segregated water closets in public spaces. Mm. 
in the United States. And it's actually in Massachusetts, 1887. 1920, at least 43 states had adopted the sex-segregated toilet legislation. Terry goes on to say, policymakers were motivated to enact toilet separation laws aimed at factories as a result of deep social anxieties over women leaving their home. The home being the appropriate separate sphere right. to enter the workforce. So it was during Victorian England, London was having the same thing happening at the same time. So the, it was Victorian concerns of modesty, right? Because women just weren't, women didn't have to use public restrooms up to this point, right? Yeah. Because they weren't yeah. leaving their house. <laughs> it is interesting how relatively recent that idea is. Yeah, 100 years. That's <laughs> really nothing. <laughs> it's really nothing. So that's when sex segregated. They were like, oh, we need to protect women's modesty. Mm. They There wasn't enough to actually, like, who are the activists behind this, right? Okay. The next, after this point, um, so just getting sex segregated, right? Racial minorities were next. Mm -hmm. In the era of racial segregation in the United States, white and black people couldn't drink from the same fountain, let alone urinate in the same bowl. Up until the 1950s and 60s, locker rooms and bathrooms were still not integrated. As late as the 70s, court battles over segregation of public facilities still continued. Yeah. So first it was women. I'm assuming white women at this point. Yes. Then it is going to be uh, racial minorities. So people of color. And then it was people with disabilities. Again, so it's that Disabilities Act that I've been talking about a lot. Yeah. And then, so if you think about public restrooms, there's like the wheelchair accessible, handicap accessible stall now, right? And then now it's transgender and gender nonconforming people Um and this is a quote from Kogan, traditional sex segregated public restrooms bring routine risk of being insulted, mocked, attacked, and even arrested for transgender people. And I don't know about you, E, but I've definitely been harassed in bathrooms before, so. I actually never have. <laughs> <laughs> but. Um, yeah, so, I mean, it's, it's happened to me quite a bit, actually. Um, I think I'm, I'm very short and I'm very white. <laughs> so I get left I'm very a tall. Lot. Yeah, it's women's it's women's restrooms where I'm being told yeah. that I'm not allowed to be in them. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, I'm going to pontificate a little bit. But if you think about it, the ways in which so transgender people bathrooms are dangerous, right? So mm -hmm. you can get harassed or or arrested or mocked in a restroom um, because um, in people's minds that is a sex segregated space, right? The sort of a gendered space. And then so transgender people are entering this gendered space and they're not necessarily being perceived as that gender, right? So it's like a very heated moment, right? It's like, it can be. So it's the sort of the desire to safely enter restrooms where a lot of these bathroom bills have been introduced. And this is actually sort of a common phenomenon, right? So the victims of this harassment end up being considered the harassers, right? Yeah. So all these bathroom bills that say that someone should only be able to use the bathroom of their legal sex. So basically, you see these in multiple states, specifically North Carolina still has one on the books. Massachusetts has just defeated it yeah. in the latest election that we had. But basically trying to force transgender people to go into bathrooms that is their, the sex that they were assigned at birth. So I just wanted to talk about that because that's a, a lot of those cases, the legal cases 
for students ends up being about bathroom accessibility and locker room accessibility in schools. And then basically the families sue the schools based on Title IX. So that's sex discrimination. Okay. So this is back from the NEA Transgender Guide. So the National Education Association Transgender Guide. Okay. So for talking about Title IX. For transgender students, there are two pivotal questions. First, does the meaning of sex in Title IX include transgender people? Mm -hmm. And second, if so, does Title IX's prohibition on sex discrimination require schools to respect a student's gender identity by allowing them to wear clothing appropriate to their gender identity and use locker rooms and bathrooms consistent with their gender identity, requiring staff to use the student's chosen name, blah, 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 right? So basically... Does Title IX require schools to respect a transgender student's identity, right? Yes, yeah. Um, An emerging body of case law and federal agencies say the answer to these questions is yes. That is what Title IX is defined for transgender students. There's um, the two federal agencies charged with enforcing Title IX is the Department of Education's Office for Civil Rights and the Justice Department. And this is actually something that is important to talk about. Betsy DeVos, right, is Trump's, the head of the Department of Education, right? Yeah. And she has specifically said that she is no longer going to follow through with discriminatory accusations for transgender students. Yeah. So basically the two federal agencies that are charged with enforcing Title IX all go through the Department of Education. And if that Department of Education refuses to follow through with that discrimination policy, that is a problem for transgender students' rights. The Department of Education is the one that is charged with this. Mm -hmm. There was a Dear Colleague letter, so that is a specific thing the Department of Education puts out in May 2016. So it is actually going to be after these articles that I found. So in 2016, the Department of Education offered a guidance for Title IX, um, but in 2018, under Betsy DeVos, um, she is refusing those guidances. So that actually is probably strongly suggests why um, discrimination might be up that I was talking about earlier. An important thing to point out is that NEA is going to be for public schools. Um, The NAIS, so that's the National Association of Independent Schools. So independent schools, um, private schools. Yeah. I personally have worked for independent schools before. Yeah. Uh, Title IX does not apply to any educational setting that is controlled by religious organization. If the application of this subsection would not be consistent, considered with the religious tenets of the organization. So basically, this religious exception allows religious schools to make decisions about students and policies for a variety of reasons, including sexual orientation and gender identity. And I mean, I know people who have gone through religious private schools, like gay people and queer people, and it is a negative experience. I mean, if you go back to the GLSEN survey, I didn't say this part, but non-religious private schools are the best in supporting LGBTQ students. Mm -hmm. Then it's public schools, and then religious private schools are the worst in supporting LGBTQ students. So I sort of skipped over this. We were talking about the Title IX stuff. Yeah, But there's also state and local laws that affect transgender students' experiences. So I'm going to read this quote from the NEA article. As with federal law, transgender students are protected by various state and local laws, which may vary around the country. Mm -hmm. Many jurisdictions explicitly prohibit discrimination in schools based on gender identity or expression, as well as sexual orientation. 
California, Colorado, Connecticut, District of Columbia, Illinois, Iowa, Maine, Massachusetts, Minnesota, New Jersey, New York, Oregon, Vermont, and the Washington State have such laws, which are generally enforced by state, civil, or human rights agencies. Mm. North Carolina state law prohibits school-based harassment based on gender identity, but North Carolina has passed a law requiring discrimination against transgender students when it comes to accessing sex-segregated facilities. So again, that bathroom law is requiring discrimination in all schools. Mm -hmm. So that is important. I mean, it's just like E was talking about, there's like a lot of this sort of medical messiness. There's also a lot of legal messiness that comes with supporting transgender people. And so I don't necessarily want to shy away from talking about this reality. Yeah. Even if it's confusing, but that's what we're here to do is try to make it less confusing. So something I really wanted to talk about um, next was safe spaces and this idea of safe spaces. The recommendation is creating a transgender student policy because then that forces everyone in that school to respect transgender rights. And then that also helps people be allies and understand that, right? So like the idea of safe spaces in schools is like the person who has like that safe space sticker on their door is an ally in some capacity and that is a safe place for that student to go and do something about being queer, right? Yeah. <laughs> so it's like a little, it's a, it's a little confusing to like, what are those safe spaces supposed to be doing, right? Yeah, yeah. And so um, there's a this article from June um, of 2018. Um, it was written by Jennifer Gunn on the Portland Education website. Mm-hmm. Um, it's titled Opening the Doors to Learning Through Safe Spaces in K-12 Schools. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's important for kids to feel included and safe. And this safe space does also not only include LGBTQ youth, but it also includes girls as well as students of color, right? Especially in schools that are going to be majority white. Yeah. Um, those safe spaces and those uh, like people of color um, affinity groups and stuff like that and clubs also in- in- includes the safe space aspect basic it's like extremely basic right but in order to learn you need to fail safe yeah right yeah (laughs) and so i mean it's like the basic level of human existence is to feel safe (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) but there's a lot of people who don't feel safe right so um, Gunn in this article talks about how the history of safe space can be traced back to the 1960s women's movement, as E had mentioned, um, a means to create a protective space for women against violence mm. and to provide a community to make change. So that community, not only safe violence, but also community building, right? Activist and scholar Moira Kenny notes that safe space in the women's movement was a means to an end and not only a physical space, but a space created by the coming together of women searching for community. Mm-hmm. Gunn goes on to say the safe space term extended to the LGBTQ community around the same time. A safe space was where people could find practical resistance to political and social repression. To continue on, um, there is an American educator, winter 2016 to 2017, mm-hmm. an article written by Michael Sadowski mm-hmm. titled More Than a Safe Space. This article argues that a school should be more than safe for LGBTQ students. Sadowski wants to articulate what it might look like to take public schools in the United States to the next level in their service to LGBTQ students and the treatment of LGBTQ issues. 
So I sort of wanted to talk about the history of safe schools. So like in the 1980s and early 90s is when educators and activists began pushing for safety in schools for gay and lesbian students. Students were being verbally and physically harassed and thus suffered not only academically, but their health and mental well-being was also being hurt, right? So in 1989, Massachusetts was the first state to tackle issues affecting LGBTQ youth by establishing the Governor's Commission on Gay and Lesbian Youth. Mm -hmm. It was a Republican governor named uh, William Weld who issued this executive order, primarily by highlighting the public health epidemic of gay and lesbian youth suicide. Mm -hmm. National statistics at the time showed that about a third of adolescent suicides were by gay and lesbian young people. So that is a like a horrible statistic, right? So that is so 1989 is when gay and lesbian youth, not transgender, right? Yeah. Actually just started to get talked about in schools, right? So that's highly recent, right? That's 20 20 years ago. Yeah. 30 years ago. I was born in 1989. <laughs> that's 30. But also the current statistic that Sadowski cites is that one in four LGBT youth attempt suicide in their adolescence. So this statistic is also still very high. Mm. That is why we're talking about this and why we need to continue this work. So he says the the sort of um, talking about safe zones. Um, so another way safe language is central to schools' efforts to provide climates. So right, so he says it's all about safe, 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 rather than like inclusive education on all these things, right? Mm -hmm. So it becomes the centralized conversation for allies and schools, right? Is the designation within many school buildings of safe zones, which indicated by stickers on the door. Um, I was really, really intrigued. I really was trying to find the history of those safe space stickers. Yeah. I mentioned this before we started recording, but E, you have one for that your school provided you, right? Yeah, well, I got, yeah, the, the LGBTQ office in the Multicultural and Diversity Affairs office, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. Uh, you, they have they, they say they're ga they're gators that have <laughs> um, a rainbow overlay on them, and they say "chomp out homophobia." Because <laughs> <laughs> UF really likes to lean into the gator oh. kitsch. Um, I love it. People put them on their like I've seen professors have them on their office doors. Did you have them growing up? No. Um, not that I ever saw. You grew up in Florida. Yeah. I grew up in Minnesota. And so actually uh, talking about the list of school of uh, states that have non-discriminatory laws, um, Minnesota is one of them. And I, I grew up seeing the sort of the safe zone sticker around my schools. Yeah. And so... I didn't really mm -hmm. um, encounter the word safe space until college. Okay, that makes sense. I don't think I really understood it as a thing, because that's the thing, is that people have these stickers, mm -hmm. educators have these stickers, but they don't talk about it. Yeah. And it's supposed to be, like, you're supposed to, like, know you, that you're gay, and, like, then, like, this person is someone you could talk to about it, but it's, like, so... Um, reliant on the student to be the one who's the initiator. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if if anyone out there has worked with young people, you know that putting the onus on the student is um, asking a lot, mm -hmm. right? And so the sort of the history, uh, Sadowski talks about the history. So the stickers, um, which first started appearing in the 1990s, 
and of there were many versions serve as an important symbolic function that they announce the student without the need of for any discussion, right? There's no discussion about it, but they announce that these educators in one way or another are LGBTQ friendly. Mm. So um, it does make a difference on a student's perception of their school, how they feel about their school, but there's dubious connections to, to like actual utility in facilitating conversations and the actual actions of the staff. Right. He also talks about how GSAs, I sort of, I didn't really talk about GSAs, Gay Straight Alliance. There's also a lot of conversation about GSAs and what is considered an affinity club, right? Yeah. So like there's affinity clubs for like women and girls and also students of color and also GSAs, which um, sort of traditionally were um, gay straight alliances, but are starting to sort of change into um, gender and sexuality and allies or something like that. Like the actual, they're still using the GSA acronym, mm. but now they're trying to be more inclusive of transgender student experiences and sort of how they're only GSAs um, may shift the support for LGBTQ students, but it only happens at the club meetings, right? Rather than sort of a continual everyday support. So if a certain place in the school is designated as a safe space, what does that say about the rest of the building? And then there's also sort of a concerns about intersectionality and yeah. like the ways in which different oppressed groups can sort of have different needs. And then also what he is sort of supporting, and I bought his book, so I haven't gotten an opportunity to read it yet. But um, so he is trying to imagine what does optimal education for youth look like? Right. Right. And so my argument is obviously trying to move away from safe space and the whole school should be a safe space for all students, right? Yeah. And also looking at full integration of LGBTQIA topics in the curriculum, right? So being able to talk about and teach positive, like we're looking at the GLSEN survey again, the actual integration of LGBTQ topics in the actual classroom is only less than 20%, right? That's even just like a mention, a mention of a queer person. Right. I just want to be able to imagine a world that has sort of everyday support for LGBTQ youth that isn't focused on sort of like the negative experience of trying to do like anti-harassment work and actually talking about how queer people's contributions in history and art and the social sciences and all that stuff. Yeah. And talking about it, right? Because that's, I mean, that's how you create normalization. I mean, right now, white cisgender experience experience is the normalized experience, right? Yeah. And that is isolating for all these students who don't identify that way. So, I mean, the same goes for including more uh, people of color in curriculum and reading lists. So let me just give you a real quick, my favorite thing to do at the end of my segment of drawing a dialogue, actually try to connect it to comics somehow. <laughs> um, <laughs> But it is, like, right, honestly, being able to talk about comics and, like, reading and, like, all that stuff, I, I've talked about it before, but the way in which the art classroom can be the catalyst for these social changes is, like, really important, and I think that's what art classrooms should be doing. Um, so I just have a quick reading list um, So for trans and non-binary youth. I have a few books that I pulled from the Comics Alliance Guide uh, written by Charlotte Finn, and I have a couple of my own. So there's Cucumber Quest by GGDG, mm -hmm. um, published by First Second. Um, there's Backstagers by Tinian and Sieg, published by Boom Studios. So all these books are going to actually have trans characters 
um, Gem in the Holograms, written by Kelly Thompson and drawn by Sophie Campbell. Mm -hmm. That's from IDW. Wandering Sun by Shimura Takako. That's from Fentagraphics. A couple of my own books that I recommend is um, The Prince and the Dressmaker by Jen Wang mm-hmm. from First Second. It, it, that isn't a specifically a trans experience, but it is a gender non-conforming experience, which I think is great. Yeah. And then also As the Crow Flies by Melanie Gilliman, published by Iron Circus Comics. Yes. I have, hopefully in the future, I'll have, I've been talking to some librarians, um, trying to get their lists of trans inclusive um, kids comics. Mm. Um, but again, it's a very short list my own book once it gets published (laughs) in march will be be on this list as well so that's just a tiny tiny way to be able to start including trans youth in their own education and that's my segment yes thank you that was very informative thank you so our next segment is letters to the editor which is where we talk about Uh, resources from previous episodes that we want to revisit or um, we talk about anything that we were sent. Do you have anything for letters to the editor this month, E? So I just wanted to plug, since this episode will be going up the day before Comic Arts Los Angeles begins, um, I will be doing a panel on sort of this topic of authenticity and trans embodiment in comics with some very cool cartoonists. And um, I think it's going to be really interesting and I'm excited for it. Awesome. So I wanted to talk about for letters to the editor. Um, so poetry magazine, if you don't know poetry magazine, it is the American poetry foundation. They've been publishing American poets uh, for like a hundred years and you can get a subscription to them. If you're a student for like 17 bucks it's great. I love the poetry magazine. Mm. Um, they also have all their poetry online for free. Um, so I really want to talk about this one from the November 2018 issue, and I'll also link it. It's a poem by Torin A. Greathouse. It's titled On Confinement. Mm-hmm. And it's specifically, she is talking about her as a trans person and her partner as a trans person, and their interactions with prisons and incarceration, and the ways in which queerness and transness is policed. She specifically talks about the panopticon and the, like prison designs and the ways in which therapists can be policing. It's like such a wonderful poem um, that talks a lot about the topics that E mentioned in our last episode, mm-hmm. episode 16, the incarceration and school to prison pipeline and resistance episode mm-hmm. when talking about a queer incarceration and sort of the criminality of trans bodies in the world. Um, And it also actually does have a lot to do with public access to spaces and transness in public areas um, that we talked about this episode. Yeah. Um, So it's just a really great poem. Um, There's also a recording of her reading it on the Poetry Foundation podcast, which is great. And then the editors of the magazine have a discussion about poem. So I'm going to read these few lines. This is Great House's poem on confinement. I plead my sentence down in exchange for my face, my prince, my DNA, and 10 years probation. When I see a cop, I fear my breath, criminal. And when my therapist asks me if I'm suicidal, I lie. Perhaps both, 
are a kind of surveillance. Mm. So I'll link that poem. It's great. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. So thank you for listening. This has been Drawing a Dialogue. We want to thank Downtown Boys for their song Wave of History. It's off their album Full Communism. You can get it off their band camp. It's linked in our episode show notes, which you can access at drawingadialogue.com. You can follow us on Twitter at uh, Draw Dialogue and tweet at us there. You can send us things. Um, Questions, additional material, things that are of interest, really whatever, um, to our email, which is drawingadialogue at gmail.com. Yeah, um, please do drawingadialogue at gmail.com. We don't mind if you think we're wrong. Yeah. (laughs) Talk to us. It's a discussion. That's the whole point. It's It's a a dialogue. Indeed. You can look at Kathy's very good reading comics reading lists and Comic Art Ed, which hosts Drawing a Dialogue. Um, Thank you. ComicArtEd.com. ComicArtEd.com, yes. And you can follow you. me on Twitter at ehetja, which is E-H-E-T-J-A. And you can follow me at Kathy G. John, C-A-T-H-Y-G-O-H-N. Um, I just want to plug one more time. Um, you can pre-order my upcoming graphic novel, The Breakaways, um, it's coming up from first second in March. You can pre-order it at thebreakawayscomic.com. That includes the the. So it's thebreakawayscomic.com. Pre-orders are really helpful to authors. Yes. Um, so that's why I am choosing to tell you about it. But you can also totally pre-order at your local comic shop, your local bookstore. You do not have to pre-order off of Amazon. <laughs> I'm just going to say that right here, right now. <laughs> I like that you've made the, the Indie Bound button the largest. <laughs> yes, you can click the Indie Bound button. I have it on thebreakawayscomic.com. If you click the Indie Bound button, you can find your local bookstore um, that you can pre-order through. They are happy to pre-order for you. They're happy to do it. Local bookstores, um, they want to know what people want to buy. Usually if you pre-order, they will order of one or two copies just for the bookstore themselves Mm -hmm. so it can also really help me out it's also a good book (laughs) (laughs) no it's a great book (laughs) a very good book thanks so kathy what are you reading i am currently reading two um books right now so the first is a novel by jg ballard titled concrete island i read his other book high rise earlier this year Mm -hmm. And so I love J.G. Ballard, so I'm almost at the end of this one. And then I'm also reading a collection of essays on Texas titled In a Narrow Grave by Larry McMurtry. He actually wrote the screenplay and won an Academy Award off of, for Brokeback Mountain, oh. um, which is by Annie Prohl, my number one favorite author. So I actually had read a few, I read, I read a few more Annie Prohl books this year. Yeah. Um, I've talked about her in this before podcast before. Um, so I thought I'd pick up something by another author that she has a connection with. Yeah. Um, yeah. I also just visited Texas. So <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm on like a Texas kick right now. So what are you reading, E? Um, uh, for, well, as usual, a lot, but, uh, specifically um so there was a uh the friends of the alachua county library down here does a really big like twice annual book sale um cool and there's a day where everything is 10 cents 
Oh my gosh. <laughs> so we went to the 10 cent book sale and I got a bunch of things, but I just, I read, um, a few weeks ago, I got a, a book of the shorter novels of Herman Melville that had Bartleby and I got it specifically so I could read Bartleby the Scrivener. Cause that has come up in, uh, Bartleby the Scrivener came up a couple of times in our, uh, carceral studies class. Cause Melville's, some of Melville's writing is sort of like seen as critique of the penitentiary system and stuff oh interesting um, so i read bartleby mm. uh which is really funny <laughs> honestly um mm. so the story bartleby is a it's written from the perspective of a guy who runs like a law office and he hires this dude bartleby as a scrivener but bartleby like is this weird ghostly figure that uh, just stops doing work after a while, and anytime he asks him to do work, he just says, um, "I would prefer not to." <laughs> and it like gets more and more intense. Like he try, like he feels bad for him, and he tries to rehabilitate him, and is like, you know, like let me take you out to dinner or whatever. And Bartleby's just like, "I would prefer not to." Um, and it gets to a point where the uh, the lawyer ends up moving out of his office <laughs> to get away from Bartleby. <laughs> And uh, and Bartleby doesn't oh leave, gosh. so then the the owners of the old building show up and are like, "You have to do something with Bartleby. We had with this weird man who's haunting <laughs> us." So he ends up having him sent to the tombs, which is um, a penitentiary in New York, and he goes to visit Bartleby, and Bartleby like just. Bartleby refuses to eat and ultimately dies in the penitentiary. And the last lines of the book are, ah, Bartleby, ah, humanity. Um, so a lot of people read that as like a very, as like a critique of like the reform movements of penitentiary, like the idea that like you're supposed to reform your soul or whatever. Haunting and things like that mm. are common uh, tro like themes in uh, novels about the penitentiary system. So <laughs> it's very good, though. It's very mm. funny, honestly. Um, Herman Melville, the author of um, Moby Dick. Moby Dick. Yeah. 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 Just letting our listeners know. Yeah. I, well, I haven't read Moby Dick, so I can't. Awesome. Thank you so much, E. Yes. Thank you. Um, so this has been Drawing a Dialogue. Thank you so much for listening. Farewell to our intrepid volunteers. Bye.